navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. So let's get to today's topic. It is one of my favorite, favorite topics. It is called working with experts. I am an absolute 100% strong believer that having the right experts, that having experts absolutely helps your case. It helps you in your liability case. It helps you in your damages to build up the value of your case. It helps you get your cases settled. It's a great way to learn new material. It's just a fantastic part of what this profession and the area of personal injury law uh, specifically, where we have the opportunity to work with people who are so knowledgeable in so many specific areas uh, and to really learn a lot. And to be a good lawyer, you have to continue to learn, right? We're always learning. And you all know that. That's why you tuned in today to hopefully pick up a couple of new tidbits, learn something uh, new, or maybe reinforce something that you're already doing. So we're going to talk about working with experts and let's get to it right now. Why would you want to have an expert? Lots of reasons, lots of reasons. First, there's so many benefits to having experts uh, working with you on your case. They can help you determine how strong your case is or how weak your case is or you know what pitfalls to look out for. I often ask my experts, if you were hired by the defense on this, my adversary, what would you be saying to them? How would you defend this case? Things like that. So they can really help you sort of size up your case. They can help you develop the liability in your case. Uh, many times we're going to talk about you need, you may not, you may need, you may not need, but you may want either way, an expert to really strengthen the issues involving the liability in your case, whatever type of case that may be. They can help you enhance the damages in your case. So many times, so many times I have had cases where because there's no loss of income, perhaps, or the person wasn't working and they're injured, it becomes a pain and suffering only case. But if you get the right damages experts involved, a life care planner, an economist, you can really work up hard economic numbers that could really help you with the value of your case. And we'll talk about that. Uh, they can help you in visually presenting your case. There are experts out there that specialize in trial exhibits, in 3D uh, models, in computer animation, in medical illustrations, all types of things that you can use uh, either in mediations or at trial to really help you uh, express either areas of liability or damages in your case. Another thing that I love about experts is that it's a private tutor that you have built in. You literally are going to someone with expertise. They're top in their field, hopefully. You're paying them money to work with you in the case. And it's not just to, not just to be there to testify for you. It's to educate you. It's to have one-on-one -on -one private sessions with them, either by Zoom or in person, where they can teach you the material that you need to know. 
Remember when we talked about depositions uh, in the first part of this series and I talked about, you know, training to fight that uh, expert kind of like a boxing match and and sizing that expert up and knowing when they're going to drop their their guard so you can, you know, go in for the knockout punch. That's what the private tutor does for you. They train you, they coach you, they teach you so you can go head to head uh, with your adversaries and your adversaries experts. Okay, so it's just it's a great learning experience. Uh, experts help so much. And um, that's why we're talking about them today. So let's start off with when do you actually need an expert? Is an expert necessary? Is it required? Oftentimes, I'll sit around with the lawyers in my firm on a case and I'll say, do we want an expert? Do we need an expert? I'll oftentimes have lawyers ask me, do I need to get an expert for this? Well, let's talk about that for a moment. There are some instances where you need an expert, and there's some times when you can have one if you can show that uh, their opinion uh, has merit and is something that is outside of the province of a, a layperson, a normal juror, to help them educate them in a trial or on a case. So the standard, the legal standard, is that as a general rule, an expert is permitted and can be allowed when there's an, a, an issue in the case uh, involving professional or scientific knowledge or skill that is not within the range of ordinary training or intelligence. Some examples, it's a medical malpractice case, talking about a procedure on the heart that went wrong. Obviously, you're gonna need a medical expert to talk about the right way and wrong way to do this procedure because lay people don't know that. Contrary to that, if it's an auto accident, you don't need an expert to come in and say it's a departure from good and accepted practice or from reasonable care to not stop for a stoplight or a stop sign. Lay people can do that, can decide whether or not someone's liable if they don't look before turning. You don't need an expert for that. Sometimes it's tricky. Sometimes uh, you may want to bring in an expert and your adversary may fight you on it and say, no, no, this is, it's all simple stuff. We don't want you just to have a stronger case because you're paying some fancy person to come in and say the person shouldn't run a, run a traffic light. So as long as um, the expert is going to talk about and opine on issues uh, that are not within the normal province of a, of a jury, something that is unique, maybe not all people know about it, then you can bring an expert in. And usually if you build it up right and you want to bring an expert, you can make a good argument for why that expert has knowledge that um, a lay person may not have. I'll give you a brief example. I had a case once where a, a woman was sitting at a, a bar counter with her friend, uh, enjoying a cocktail after work. And the bartender was showing off and he was shaking up a cocktail, but he didn't have two hands on the cocktail shaker. He had one hand. And as he's shaking it up with one hand, it flew out of his hand and it cold clocked my client in the head, causing a brain injury. It ended up resolving for a, a big number and it was a big case. And you would never think you could, that could happen. So we got an expert in bartending. He wrote a book on how to bartend. He talked about how you're supposed to always have two hands on the shaker. That's known to happen. So we retain that expert so that if the case had to be tried, it settled on the eve of trial, he would come in and explain to a jury, you're not supposed to shake it with one hand. You're supposed to have two hands for that exact reason so people don't get hurt, okay? So as long as you can make the argument 
that uh, there's something outside the province of the knowledge of a layperson, a lager, then you can bring an expert in. Now, sometimes you must have an expert on your case. There's not even a, a debate about it. And that's, again, in a medical malpractice case. So if you are a plaintiff and you are filing a medical malpractice case, you are required uh, to file when you, at the time of filing the complaint, a certificate of merit that you as the lawyer sign off. This is CPLR 3012 subdivision A. And the law requires that any lawyer filing a medical malpractice cause of action must also file a certificate of merit, which is basically a one-page affidavit saying, or affirmation saying, I have consulted with a, the appropriate medical professional who has advised me that I have a viable and meritorious claim to pursue. Okay, so if you're signing one of those and you don't have an expert, that's bad. That's not how you're supposed to do it. That's not ethical. And it also doesn't make practical sense. If you're going down the road of filing a medical malpractice case, you are going to meet resistance. Those cases don't resolve easily. You're going to have good lawyers fighting you, good insurance company people fighting you, good doctors and experts to deal with. And so you want to make sure that you have an expert on board before you get going in a medical malpractice case. So sometimes you need it and sometimes you just should have an expert because it makes good sense uh, to prepare and build your case. Okay. So there are lots of reasons to retain experts, but primarily it's to make your case stronger. It's to increase the value of the case. It's to learn more about the subject matter of your case. I'm sure all of us have been involved in a case at some point in our career that it's something new that we're learning about. And I remember, you know, I had a construction accident case involving, it was a backhoe, which has like a, a boom with a bucket on it. And that boom swung and it knocked in and knocked all over into one of my clients at the time and injured them. And I had to learn why the person operating that backhoe, what they did wrong. So I got an expert backhoe operator who actually brought me to a backhoe and showed me how you operated and where the safeties are and what good practices. And it was invaluable for when it was time for me to question the backhoe operator in my case, because I learned how to operate a backhoe. And how can you question someone properly without having that information? Um, also, it's going to help you get your cases resolved faster, which is what we all want, whether you're a plaintiff's lawyer, a defense lawyer, we all want resolution uh, that'll make our client happy or satisfied that the case resolves. And when you have an expert, you can highlight the strengths and weaknesses of your case better. You can learn the subject matter so you can assess the strengths and weaknesses of your case better, and it'll put you in a better position to settle your case. Also, it's nice to be able to tell your adversary, listen, I've got an expert. I've got a really good expert. But either way, this case is surviving summary judgment, and either way, a jury is going to have to decide between my expert and your expert's opinion. And I like my expert. Well-credentialed, really likable. And I feel good. And, uh, you know, I'm not shy about sharing that with my adversaries. And it makes you feel good about the strength of your position, which leads to better settlements. Okay. Now, when should you retain an expert in addition to when you're required to at the beginning of a medical malpractice case? Well, 
The short answer is as early as possible. Now, technically, if you are in state court, at least here in New York, I know every state's a little different, but uh, New York state, you do not have to disclose your experts until you get closer to trial. And that's pursuant to the New York CPLR. And that is rule 3101 D1, which, which um, oversees the um, pretrial uh, disclosures of expert witnesses. And generally, everyone always thinks it's 30 days before trial that you have to disclose your experts. The statute doesn't say 30 days. But, and I've had cases where I've had defendants disclose their expert literally on the eve of trial or that morning. And uh, we had a case once go up to the appellate division and they said, no, it was error for the judge to preclude that expert, that it really wasn't prejudicial. So you got to be careful, but you want to disclose your experts as early as possible. I've given you two sample uh, 3101 D1 disclosures, expert disclosures, one for a cardiologist, one for an accident reconstructionist. Those are in the materials. But again, in state court, you do not have to disclose your experts until you get close to trial, um, usually between when the note of issue is filed and when that trial comes up is when you're disclosing your experts. But even though you don't have to disclose them until later on, you want to have them more on board early, as early as possible, so that they can help educate you on the subject matter. And also, they're going to help educate you on what discovery you need. So if you get them on board early, when you normally are going to send out your demands, your discovery demands, you know, if it's a construction accident case and you have a construction expert, maybe you haven't handled a lot of these cases before, you bring in a construction site safety expert and they're going to say, oh yeah, at this job site, they should have toolbox talks, they should have safety meetings, they should have a site safety person, you want to request the daily log sheets, you want to request, uh, you know, all the OSHA certifications. So a good expert can tell you what you should ask for. In a medical malpractice case, uh, if you give the your expert the chart to review, they may say, hey, it's missing the flow sheets. You want to ask for the flow sheets. Those weren't included in what they gave you. Uh, if it's a product liability case, uh, depending on what that product is, if you have the right expert, they're going to tell you what blueprints, what trademarks, what testing was done, what to ask for. So when you have a liability expert on early, it's going to really help you in knowing what to ask for. And then when you receive responses, that expert's going to help go through those and explain what's in there uh, and explain the good stuff, the bad stuff, maybe what's missing, or maybe what else to ask for based on what you've received already. So I like to have my liability experts on early, the earlier, the better. Okay, because then you can work during what to get in discovery to review discovery. And then when it comes time for depositions, they've reviewed everything. You have a nice working relationship with your liability expert. And then you could set up time to have a meeting either by Zoom or in person for what I like to call the tutoring session or the prep session, where I sit with my expert and go over everything, ask every question like I'm a fifth grader. Well, why is that? Well, when should they do this? Well, what's wrong with that? And I record it on Zoom so I can look back and I take notes. And I'll usually ask my associate to sit in with me to also listen and take notes and ask questions. 
And that's how you learn. That's how you can prepare properly uh, for proceeding with a deposition of a defense witness once you have that expert on board. Comment to submit it, and I'll try and touch on it if I can during this hour. If not, I will definitely go through everything in the uh 2 to 2.30 half hour session. So Jeffrey's asking if I have any specific tips on using a genealogist in a surrogate's court kinship hearing. I don't know anything about kinship hearings in surrogate's court. I've never handled one, but it sounds great to me. And if there's an issue about kinship and a genealogist is able to uh, back up how the methodology for how to determine that, I think it would make sense to use a genealogist. And I think that would be a perfect idea to use that. And I would encourage that uh, better than you getting up and trying to argue uh, what the kinship order is. I have an expert who specializes in that. Uh, Catherine is asking, what about competency, such as Alzheimer's, dementia, whether someone's competent to uh, enter into a contract or marriage? So certainly, oftentimes, I know in different hearings, there will be an issue as to competency. And the proper thing is to have a um, an expert do an evaluation. And that could be probably a neuropsychologist. It could be uh, various other types of specialties of your research, someone who specializes in that type of work. There's plenty out there. I know there's often competency hearings that take place, so you would need an expert for that. Uh, that's another great example. Uh, Mark is asking whether or not an accident reconstructionist is stepping on the province of the fact finder um, and that uh, he's precluded some experts for that reason. So it's a great point, Mark. It depends on what they're reconstructing, right? If you're bringing in an accident reconstructionist to try and argue uh, on how someone maybe tripped and fell, um, maybe that is going over the bounds. But in the materials, I include a 3101 exchange for an accident reconstructionist I've worked with named Michael DeSico, who's amazing. Uh, and that was in my Amador case I talk about a lot, where I had a battle of he said, she said. They both claimed the right of way approaching a turn. My client's on a motorcycle. The other person with the defendant was in a car and uh, they each blamed the other. So I reached out to Michael and I said, can you make sense out of this? If you go to the site, you read their depositions, look at everything. And he was able to reconstruct it, uh, but it takes expertise and, and there had to be a foundation. He talked about skid marks, photos, how you're able to back things up, how you're able to determine speeds, using drones to determine certain distances and measurements. So those are all things that would be outside of the province of a jury that would assist them in determining who is at fault in the case. So I think depending on the fact pattern and what you want your accident to reconstruct, uh, most likely it should be allowed. But if it's really overstepping the bounds of uh, a lay opinion to determine the facts uh, at issue in the case, then uh, you've done a great job if you've been able to preclude that. Uh, Joshua is asking if you think that you need an expert to tell what went wrong, should you not be taking the case? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. You know, if you think you need an expert to explain what went wrong, should you not be taking the case? Um, no, I disagree with that. Uh, just because as a lawyer, I don't know what went wrong. Suppose there's a huge collapse that happened at a building. How do I know who's responsible for it or what caused it? Suppose something goes wrong during a medical procedure. How do I know if it 
was negligence or a risk of the procedure. Uh, there's so many things that happen out there, especially in the area of personal injury law, that we need experts to tell us, does this happen a lot? Is this a departure? Is this, uh, is you know, are these things supposed to break after 20 years? Or are they supposed to stay strong? You know, all kinds of things. So I think it's always good because we as lawyers are not knowledgeable in every area to determine whether or not there's a case. Uh, so that's why you get experts on board early to tell you there's a case. All right, Larry's asking, if the opposing side wants to take the deposition of an expert, who pays the expert's fee or the time expended? Good question. In state court, at least in New York state, uh, expert depositions aren't allowed. Uh, and if you don't agree to it, it's not going to happen unless there's some compelling reason uh, and the party seeking the deposition applies to the judge and the judge orders it. In federal court, which we haven't talked about yet, it's a whole other world with experts. So in federal court, there is expert discovery. It's going to be included in your original case management order, uh, where after fact discovery is completed, then there's expert discovery. You'll have a certain amount of time. You have to exchange expert reports. Then you have to produce your expert witnesses to be deposed. And it is the person taking the deposition who pays that expert's time. So if your expert's fee schedule is $5,000 for a deposition or $1,000 an hour or whatever it may be, you provide that to your adversary and say, here's the fee schedule. If you want to take my expert's deposition in federal court or otherwise, or depending what state you may be in listening to this, uh, then it, the adversary has to pay for it. And if they don't want to pay for it, then they don't get to take the deposition. Now, if they think it's unreasonable, and I've had that happen before, you know, let's say they say, all right, it's $20,000 my expert wants for a deposition, then you could apply to the court and you could say, listen, that's unreasonable. You know, we think a reasonable fee is 3000 or 4000 or hourly. And if that expert insists on that, then that has to come out of the plaintiff or the defendant, whoever hired that expert, they have to make up the difference. We didn't choose this expert, they did. We didn't have the benefit of determining their fees beforehand. So that's how that works, okay? Um, in deposing experts, uh, Danza Karen is asking me what special circumstances. You gotta go to last month's CLE where we talk about what you do when you're deposing uh, experts. I also talk about that in my book, uh, How to Successfully Litigate a Personal Injury Case which you can get if you um, scan this code. Um, oh, I'm sorry, Mark. The question was not about accidents. A reconstructionist can give the technical facts, but it's up to the jury to determine what actually happens. Right. So as far as any kind of expert who's doing a reconstruction, it's always going to be the jury's decision to, to make the factual determinations. Uh, and if that reconstructionist's opinion can help them in that regard, then it's allowed. If it's stepping into the province of the jury, then it's not allowed. And sometimes that's tricky to determine, okay? Um, uh, Richard is asking, what do you, how do you find out what the expert of the opposing party is going to say and what are the ethical boundaries and all of that? Um, you know, you don't always know. You know in federal court because you get a report first and you're allowed to subpoena their file before you question them. In state court, you may not know. Uh, if there's no report, if you haven't been given anything in advance. Um, all right, there's a lot more questions and I'm gonna save those because I wanna make sure I get through. There's still a good amount more that I need to talk about and I only have about 25 minutes to do so. 
So we're talking about when to get the experts on board. And I said, as early as possible. Look, I know as a practical matter, this costs money, folks. Experts cost money, no doubt about it. And if it's going to cost you fifteen dollars to $20,000 to bring in a life care planner, a vocational analysis, an economist uh, to build up the damages in your case, you have to decide, is it worth spending that money? Do I think at the end of the day, it's going to make my case stronger? And I do it all the time. And I think it does. And I'll give you some examples uh, when we have some time. But actually, I'll give you a quick example now. I had one of these cases where... It was, uh, I was actually trying this case in Connecticut. It was a Connecticut matter. And I handle some cases in Connecticut, not many. And um, my client was rear-ended and had cervical fusion, okay? But there was no loss of income claim. Her medical bills were covered. And the judge and the defense lawyer telling me, oh, you know, you're not going to get the kind of money that you think you get, you know, Mr. New York City trial lawyer. You're up here in Connecticut and jurors, maybe they'll give her $200,000 for her pain and suffering, you know, that kind of stuff. And they were really going back and forth with me on the value, the pain and suffering value of a, of a fusion surgery. Okay. I was all the way up here. They were all the way down there and we were sort of at an impasse. So I said, I said, skip this, whatever you want to phrase, you want to substitute in there. And I said, let's do it. And I spent the money. I figured I had a life care plan, figure out what she's going to need for the rest of her life. I took that life care plan. Um, I brought it to an economist. The economist worked it up and it ended up showing over seven figures worth of future medical care. And now you have hard numbers. You have a life care plan that can be 20 some odd pages talking about future surgeries, future procedures, future medication, the cost, the economist produce, produces that over the lifetime. Now I can go back and say, all right, well, I've got economic numbers that are in excess of your million dollar policy. So what do you have to say for yourself now? We're not just talking pain and suffering. And ultimately it was those economic numbers that helped me get the case resolved on the eve of trial. So it was worth the 15 to $20,000 I spent building up the economics, you get those back as an expense. But understandably, if you have multiple cases and you need to spend money on experts on all these cases, it is going to cost you money. So you have to spend it. And if you can't afford to do it, you have to borrow by way of a credit line. And if you don't have that and you don't feel comfortable borrowing, um, then I suggest you team up with a firm. I do that with a lot of solo lawyers. They'll get into a case and they'll say, listen, I think this needs some real big workup, but you know, it's just too much for me to invest in. Can I work with you in some arrangement? So we do that with a lot of lawyers. So if you're not able to um, work up a case and fund the case yourself, team up with a firm that can help you or refer it out to a place that can help you because it's going to benefit your client and ultimately you'll get more out of it. So get your experts on as early as makes financial and practical sense to you. But again, the earlier, the better. So before depositions we're talking about, you have the tutoring session and you prepare. Most cases these days go to summary judgment. I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, my fellow colleagues on the defense side, but you pretty much have on your checklist of what to do in defending the case, a uh, checkbox for move for summary judgment to dismiss, right? I mean, that's, it's standard par for the course. And so you're going to need an expert to make that motion 
And you're going to need an expert to oppose that motion if it's served on you. So you're going to want to have your experts on board and not be flailing around at the last minute when that motion hits and say, oh, my goodness, we got to get an expert. So if you have that expert early on, you know you're in good shape. And by the way, when you retain an expert, make sure to confirm with that expert that he or she knows and is willing to sign affidavits and affirmations in support or in opposition of summary judgment, appear to deposition if needed, and testify at trial, okay? It's not assumed unless you know that you've worked with this expert before. I've had a lot of people call me up and say, Andrew, what do you think I should do? I have this expert and I got this expert and they told me I had a case, but they're telling me they're not going to testify at trial. And I say, well, what did you retain them for? Well, they told me they'd look at the records and they'd let me know. Well, did they tell you they wouldn't go to trial for you? Well, they didn't. They didn't think it was going to go to trial. I didn't ask. And now that it is, now I'm trying to find other experts, but no one's telling me that they can support my case. What do I do? You do not want to be in that situation. So when you retain an expert, make it clear you're paying them. They're putting themselves out there as for hire. They're going to do the job. You're paying them money. But as part of that deal, they've got to be responsive to you. They've got to answer your calls and emails. They've got to make time to prep and work with you. They've got to show up at time of trial to testify. And if they're running into any issues or they're having any doubts, they need to let you know as soon as possible. So make sure you vet your experts and make sure that you don't spend money and work with someone that's going to bail out on you uh, and leave you high and dry, okay? You certainly want your experts uh, after uh, the note of issues filed and you're getting ready for trial so you could start preparing properly and exchange your 3101D1 exclosures, okay? And again, in federal court, as I mentioned earlier, it will be part of a case management plan. So you wanna have your experts on immediately. They need to be ready to rock and roll because they're gonna have to be deposed. They're gonna have to go to trial. Um, and some experts I know won't get involved in federal court cases because they don't want to be deposed. They don't want transcripts out there that can come back and bite them uh, unless it's a trial transcript. So make sure you ask your experts before retaining them. Okay. All right. Now let's talk about different types of experts because there's all kinds of experts in all kinds of areas. So you have liability experts and you have damages experts. And again, depending on your case, you would want to get them on board as soon as possible. Some may say, why do I want to get my damages experts on if I don't even know if I've got liability locked down? Well, if it seems like it's a good case and you don't really know the value of it yet, that's when you want to get the damages experts involved early to give you an idea of what your case is worth to run those numbers, uh, that economic loss, to figure out, don't just assume if the person's making $100,000 a year and can no longer work, that you're gonna multiply that $100,000 a year up until age 65, right? There's a lot more that goes into it. There's growth that an economist has to apply for wages. There's benefits that will ride along, that will increase uh, in accordance with salaries and raises. 
there's uh, perks, there's pensions, there's matching contributions they may have. There's a lot of things. So, you know, you don't want to sell yourself or your client short. You want to know what the potential value of your case is uh, so that you can make the appropriate demand early on and really have a sense of what your case is worth. Uh, in a federal case I had once, I brought in all my experts early and I put together a whole binder. Uh, the person, my client was burned badly in a fire. So I had a plastic surgeon evaluate him just for the case. I had a photographer take pictures. I had a life care plan, a vocational plan, an economist. I put it all together, all the reports in a big binder and I FedExed it to all the different defendants and their carriers. And I said, here, here's my playbook. You wanna see what we're gonna have for proof? Come trial next year or in a year and a half. If you want to talk now, this is where we're going. This is what you're you can expect, and it worked. And I was able to get the case resolved much earlier than other cases would have. All right, so let's talk about types of experts. You've got medical experts. Certainly, any medical malpractice case, you're going to need a medical expert that matches up with the specialty practice area where there may be malpractice, and sometimes it's more than one area. For example a failure to diagnose cancer case. Woman goes in for a mammogram. She finds out a year later that she has cancer that's been growing for several years in her breasts. And she says, how can that be? I go for mammograms every six months to a year. You get the mammograms. You're going to need uh, a radiologist to look at those to see whether or not uh, the radiologist reading those films missed it and departed from the standard of care. But you're also going to need an oncologist to talk about causation. If they caught it earlier, would uh, she still have the same cancer? Would she still have the same treatment? Would her prognosis be different? So you're going to need two medical experts in that case. You're often going to need a liability expert and a causation expert, and sometimes a lot more than that, depending how complex the medical malpractice case is. You will have medical experts as treating physicians. Uh, a treating physician, you do not need to disclose in a 3101. It's presumed you're going to call a treating physician. In federal court, uh, you don't need to disclose them like other experts. You don't need a report from them if it's a treating physician, but you do need to disclose that they will be testifying and what you expect them to be testifying about diagnosis, causation, prognosis, and generally what they're going to say. Uh, you have IME physicians, examining physicians, those are experts. It's not uncommon in my firm if we have a client who is out of state or uh, has had multiple different doctors and not one real uh, quarterback to care, that we will have our own uh, qualified expert, an orthopedist, a neurologist, evaluate our client, review all of the records, um, generate a report, and then we'll use that uh, physician as our expert to come to court and testify. Um, so there's different ways you can use medical experts, but they're used quite often in most of the cases that we see. There's professional engineers. There's um, there's physical engineers. There's uh, there's all types of engineers we run into in cases, whether it's a premises case, a code violation, a defect case, a slip and fall case, defective equipment, uh, structural engineers. Uh, there could be trash compactors, radiators, uh, power equipment. So engineers are very helpful in their different fields with helping you establish liability in those cases. There are accident 
uh, construction accident experts. These are usually site safety personnel at big construction jobs. They're the ones who are charged with walking around the job site and making sure that everything is up to code and is safe and people up uh, and elevations have their harnesses on uh, and that things are being done according to the industrial code and the OSHA codes. Uh, so you may wanna bring in a site safety officer uh, or like I mentioned earlier, if it's operating certain equipment, you might wanna bring in someone with knowledge who's been operating that equipment. Uh, you have all kinds of experts in the fields of transportation. Subway, you can get a subway operator as an expert if you have a subway case, subway conductors, uh, bus operators. If you have a case involving a bus accident where uh, you represent a, a bus company or a bus driver, or you have a client who's been injured in a bus accident. It, we've had those where we've brought in bus operator specialists who talk about, you know, why buses should not be clipping people and taking them out when they're making a turn and they and the wheels go over the corner of the sidewalk where people might be standing. And a bus operator is supposed to check a mirror ever so often and how to avoid that. So if it's a big enough case, get your expert involved. Tractor trailer specialists. Uh, train operators, okay? We talked about accident reconstructionists. You know, sometimes it's a he said, she said. Uh, we had a case also that looked like a really tough, bad liability case for us. Our client's decedent, a man was in a Jeep Wrangler. He was on a road that was at a stop sign coming out to a main two-way road. And he came out and made a left-hand turn and he was struck by a dump truck uh, that took him out. They both went off the road and he died. And the police reports were not helpful to our side of the case saying our guy came out into a left turn. Uh, the other guy was going straight. Um, but an accident reconstruct reconstructionist was able to determine that the dump truck was speeding, that the dump truck hit our client in the opposite lane of traffic, swerved to the left, and basically got us enough to get contributory negligence on the dump truck driver, that we were able to get a decent resolution for the case. So you would want to bring in an accident reconstructionist for that. Uh, there's what's known as human factors experts. Uh, there's biomechanical experts. Biomechanical experts help figure out how forces uh, impact the body. You'll often see this in car rollover cases or airbag or collisions, showing that this impact would cause this type of injury. Uh, as a plaintiff, we'll see the defense often hire biomechanical engineers to say it was just a light tap in the back. There's no way that impact could have caused a cervical injury requiring a fusion. Um, so biomechanical experts can be in all types of cases. Uh, we're involved in a, in a substantial ski accident case now uh, where I just got a biomechanical expert that was retained by the defense, precluded under Dalbert in federal court based on a computer model that he came up with, making all kinds of stuff up that looks real fancy in front of jurors, but um, was basically uh, hooey, as they say, and I called him out on it. But those are all experts. They deal with reaction times, perception, body movement. Human factors experts are good in product liability cases. They talk about the impact or lack of impact that warnings have on people. Even if they put a warning, would it have made a difference? Um, human factors experts can also explain human behavior. Why would a person stick their arm into a trash compactor to get something out knowing that thing could come down on them? Uh, so if you have a uh, what was a plaintiff thinking type of case, uh, but it's a bad injury, you might want to get a human factors expert to help you out on that.
All right. So there's lots of liability experts. Um, there's also damages experts. We talked about economists. They can talk about growing out and projecting wage losses, um, life care plans, because a future medical treatment 10 years from now is going to cost more than getting that treatment today. Um, but the growth rate for medical treatments or doctor's visits is a different growth rate or percentage than that for medications. So they'll project the medication growth rate cost, the procedures, the doctor visits. Economists do great things with projecting out income. They'll also tell you what the present value is of a case. Uh, life care planners, they talk about future needs. And, and there are a lot of needs uh, for injured people moving forward. You may not even realize And a good life care planner, uh, even if treatment's complete, can say, you know, what the future costs are. I'll give you an example. Uh, some of you know, I had a case where that was pretty prominent back in the day. My client was run over by a train. He had been drinking and fell on the tracks and he lost uh, the lower part of his leg below uh, the knee. And he didn't need any more surgeries. He had his prosthetic device. And when we saw the case was going for trial, I said, we got to figure out, uh, you know, if there's future care needs for this guy. So we got a life care planner. We got a prosthetic specialist. And sure enough, we learned that all the visits our client was going to need to check the stump of his leg, that he was going to need new liners uh, every month, uh, different devices for his prosthetic. And when everything that he was going to need just to put on a prosthetic for the rest of his life, he was a young guy, those numbers came up into the seven figures. And sure enough, at the time of trial, they didn't, the defense didn't even dispute it. He said, if you're fine for the plaintiff, which we don't think you should, give him what he needs. We're not arguing that he needs these things for his prosthetic device. And when we won the case, they gave us exactly those future benefits. So it's important to use life care planners. You have rehabilitation experts and vocational experts. These are experts that'll talk about future jobs, future employment, uh, ways that the patient can get better, the plaintiff can get better, what they can and can't do moving forward. Uh, you want to consider using photographers, videographers as experts. Uh, the videographer can go out and film uh, the location of something. They can do day in the life videos if you have a catastrophically injured client uh, to follow them for a day. Um, they can go up in a helicopter and take overhead photographs. They could take injury and scar photos and do a real nice job, much better than your client taking it on their cell phone and sending it to you. Um, you can also use illustrators. There's all kinds of medical illustrator experts. Uh, in the materials, I have a sample sort of illustration for trial, but these are things I mentioned earlier where you bring in experts to illustrate an injury or illustrate an accident scene. We hired, we've hired sketch artists to recreate scenes to make it more visible to what a jury uh, so that they can see it if photos don't really do it justice or there's a construction accident scene. Uh, we've done all kinds of great demonstrative evidence. In the train case, we had two scale magnetic train station and you could move the conductor and move the trains uh, and all kinds of stuff. So consider doing that. Work with court exhibit specialists, all right? There's experts in areas you can't even imagine. Uh, to give you an idea of some experts that I've worked with, I mentioned the bartending expert. I've worked with personal trainer experts and gym experts. I've worked with plastics experts. I've worked with stunt experts. 
uh, people that have directed stunt movies, uh, stunts for big action films, because we represented someone who died on the scene of a, of a well-known movie doing a motorcycle stunt. Um, we brought in, in some of our ski accident cases, uh, bee netting experts who are knowledgeable in how all those nets along the side work, how many rows of them you need uh, to prevent people from going off the, tra off the trail and crashing into trees. So whatever it may be, there can be an expert out there. Uh, recently, we've had several jet ski accident cases. So we have a jet ski expert. Uh, you can find experts, and I encourage you to do that in whatever case you're working on, especially if it's an unusual case. It's going to teach you, educate you, and just make things so much better for you. Okay. So how do you find the right expert? There's lots of ways to find the right expert. So I know there's going to be an ask anything after our Q&A uh, with Robson Forensic. Uh, Robson Forensic's an academy sponsor. We have a good amount of academy sponsors. If you look in your materials, they're all listed there. And a lot of them work as expert referral services. They have experts in-house in different areas. Uh, so you can use those. Um, there are life care planners. There are vocational experts. Um, so the Academy and our sponsors are a great resource. Another great resource for finding experts is um, asking, asking around for referrals. That's usually what we do first. Um, we'll look in our own. We've been around for 60 years, our firm. So we, we've got a pretty deep black book. So people ask us for experts sometimes. We'll look back and ask each other uh, in our firm, the other lawyers, do, do we use an expert on this? Who is that expert? Are they still around? Who do we like? I'll ask colleagues, say, can have you worked with a, a biomechanical engineer you like? Um, experts come and go. So it's always good to get someone fresh and ask for recommendations. Uh, that's for starters. Otherwise, it's always good to work with services uh, like the Academy sponsors. Uh, we have a lot of great experts. That's why they're our sponsors and we allow them to be because we know they bring value. So work with them. You could do research. You could go on Lexis, Westlaw. You could type in that type of expert in those search terms and come back with cases and find, you know, experts. That's how I found a jet ski expert. I wasn't satisfied through some of the services. And I ended up researching every type of jet ski case I could find through Lexis and Westlaw and came across a couple and saw a couple of names used where experts testified. And I tried to find them on the internet. And ultimately I found one who I really liked. One had passed away, uh, one who doesn't do it anymore. So there's lots of ways to look. Um, so it's not that hard to find experts. You can go on the internet, you can Google and research uh, experts in different subject matters. All right. So it's not hard to find, uh, but the more specialized they are, the more help you may need. Uh, and there are many Academy sponsors we have who can help you in that regard. A lot of people ask me, how much does it cost? And I know I just have a few minutes left. Um, it's a big range. And the only way to find out is to ask the expert. Generally speaking, if I'm wondering what it's going to cost to do the package of a life care plan, of a vocational, of an economist, I'm thinking in my head, 10000 15000 somewhere around there, okay, to do a good economic workup where you're bringing in all of those. Uh, medical experts, uh, the fancier the, the profession uh, within medicine, the more they're going to charge. Uh, a neurosurgeon is probably going to charge you more than a radiologist. Um, 
orthopedic surgeons can cost you more than an orthopedist who doesn't do surgery. Surgeons are generally more expensive. The theory is, is that if they can make money operating on somebody, a ton of money, they're going to charge you that. If it's going to take them away from operating, they're going to charge that same amount to you to look at the case. So um, that can be hourly. Some experts charge you per hour. Uh, some charge uh, flat rates for narrative reports or evaluations. And it can span the, the it can span wide uh, the amounts that they charge. So ask. You can shop around. If it seems too high, you can go somewhere else. So and especially all these services, they're very transparent. Uh, I'd always ask for a referral of someone who's used that expert. Sometimes you can ask for what we call a look-see. You know, if I just give you a blurb, can you give me your initial thoughts before reviewing everything? Do you think it's even worth looking at? Have you ever heard of this? So sometimes you could get a courtesy free look-see. So we always try and get those if you can, okay? So prices are gonna range all over, but it is gonna cost you money. Experts cost money, but they are an expense of the case. It's a disbursement. You can lay that out. And at the end of the case, you can get that money back uh, out of the proceeds of the case. So if spending $20,000 is going to get your client an extra $300,000 and put another $100,000 in your pocket as your fee, it's worth it, right? So um, I really recommend spending the money if you have it and you can, all right? Um, and final, with two minutes left before we go to the questions, and then I have to stop uh, for Michelle to do it, meet your expert before depositions, meet your expert before trial, and I don't mean the morning of meet with them, go through everything, do it in Zoom or do it in person or both. Meet with them because they may say a lot of good stuff in writing or in emails or on the phone, but then if you meet with them and they're kind of like a dud and you don't think they're going to be very good in front of a jury, that's a problem. So I would insist on meeting any expert, Zooming with that expert before you retain them. See how that do they speak in plain terms or do they speak such language that, you know, no one's going to understand them. All right. So um, good luck. I look forward to answering your questions. I see about 19 questions. I'm going to try and get through them all. And they're super important because these are sort of the practical application when these questions are being asked that we all face. And I'll try and go through and give as best a response as I can. Also, feel free to sign up with me uh, for a one-on-one -on -one and I can workshop any specific case or any issues you have or talk about any specific experts uh, you may be looking for or want to talk about. All right. So let's get into it. Uh, Barbie is asking, what about Aaron's interviews of experts? So we talked about Aaron's last session in depositions. And for those of you who don't know what this is referring to, there's a case called Aaron's out of the second department, and it allows uh, lawyers to ask for an authorization to speak with a plaintiff's treating physician. And you have to provide the authorization uh, in discovery and allow defense counsel uh, to have that authorization to speak with the treating physician. Now, most of my colleagues on the defense side tell me that uh, usually the treating physicians blow them off. Uh, even if they have the authorization, they won't speak to them. Um, so I don't really put that in the same world as experts. Um, if you retain an expert, that is not a treating physician. You do not have to give an authorization uh, to your adversary uh, to speak with your expert. Your expert is your work product privilege. So um, you do not need, as far as I know, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, 
ever to give an authorization uh, at any time for anyone to speak with your expert. All right, Joshua is asking, um, doesn't practicing in an area of law or taking certain types of cases give a sense of what went wrong without an expert? This is a follow-up to your previous area. So Joshua, sure. You know, I say that I handle significant personal injury, medical malpractice, construction accidents, ski accidents. So yeah, if you call me up and say, I have this potential medical malpractice case, um, what do you think about it? I'll be able to tell you what I think about it after I review the records, but usually it's going to be one of three things. It's going to say, I definitely think you have a case. I definitely don't think you have a case, or it could go either way. But in even in the, I definitely think you have a case, you still need an expert, okay? And where it can go either way, which is not in medical malpractice, um, you're going to sometimes need an expert. And you explain that to your clients. They're not going to expect you to know whether or not the jet ski malfunctioned because it was a product defect or it can only malfunction because of user error. So you say to them, listen, we don't know now whether it malfunctioned because of a defect or user error, but we're going to get the right experts. We're going to have it looked at. We're going to have it examined. We don't know why the car went off the road. You say the, the brake pedal went down all the way to the ground and it wasn't working. Um, we'd have our, I'd say, we'll have our experts pull the event data recorder and have to look at it and interpret it and tell us. So the answer is yes, of course, you can have a sense of what went wrong, but you still need experts to back that up because a, a lawyer's affirmation is proof of nothing. So if you're faced with a summary judgment motion and I'm faced with one, I can't oppose a motion to dismiss my medical malpractice case saying, oh, I know it's a departure to sever the inferior alveolar nerve when you're doing a extraction of tooth number 19. I may know that from working on all these cases, but it doesn't matter. I'm not an expert. I'm not, I don't have the qualifications. So if I put that in an affidavit in opposition, it's going to be disregarded. You need an expert. Okay. Uh, hopefully that answers your question. William, what's your view on expert disclosure and a report prior to mediation as a means of strengthening the case? Great question. And one I want to spend a few moments to discuss. This is not one that's easy to answer yes or no. So let's say you're doing, as I've suggested, you've brought an expert on board. It's a liability expert. They find a lot of departures um, or uh, violations. Let's say it's a slip and fall accident and you've hired an engineer who says, yeah, the riser is the wrong step. They violated this code. They violated that code. Okay. And you're going for mediation on the case. And you know, they're going to say, well, we think you're going to have a hard time proving there was a defect. These stairs look good to us. We think a jury's not going to find it. And you're going to want to say, well, we have an expert that's going to point out it's not to code and all of that. In that situation, um, and if we, you know that your adversary, and again, this goes both ways, right? So if you're on the defense and your expert's telling you something and you're trying to tell the plaintiff, yeah, we don't see your case that way. You may want to share with them something that your expert's telling you or share a piece of a report. Um, generally, you want to be hesitant before giving over a full report uh, prior to trial, unless you have to in federal court. The reason is, is that your adversary can pick it apart, can use things in it at trial and cross-examination, things that you may not even decide to use. Sometimes we hire experts who put in 
may, way too much stuff in their report. Some stuff that's not as strong is the strong stuff. So what you may want to do is you may want to, sometimes what we'll do to find that middle ground is we'll do a 3101 disclosure prior to mediation, William. And what we'll do is we'll sort of cut and paste the opinions and the statutes and the credentials and uh, maybe even give our experts name. We probably do that. You have to in the 3101 unless it's a medical malpractice case. So they'll see you have an expert that you're disclosing, you're ready to go, and what all the findings are. So I'll generally find that that's the best way to do it. But yeah, disclose your expert reports on liability, on damages, or do a 3101 and cherry pick those items out and disclose your expert so they see that you're legit. You know, a lot of us out there try and bluff it. I have a lot of lawyers saying, yeah, I was hoping they'd come to the table after depositions, but I think they're going to make a motion. I got to get an expert on board, you know? So, you know, when you have that expert, and you're going to a mediation, you can show your adversary, listen, I'm not bluffing here. Look, this is what I have. I do that all the time. I had a medical malpractice case, a very substantial one where I had three or four different experts. I've talked about this in prior CLEs. And I told my adversaries, look, I've got an expert here. This person's head of this hospital. This person's that. We've got good really good experts. So what do you want to do? You know, and then they're saying they're making their motion for summary judgment. Maybe they didn't believe me. So then I submitted the affidavits and then they said, let's talk settlement. So it's really good to have your experts and be ready to disclose them in the proper way at the right time. Okay. Uh, Edmund is asking for me to discuss discovery and privilege issues with experts. Is all of a retained experts, testifying experts, work product discoverable? Is it advisable to have a consulting expert whose work is part of attorney work product and thus protected, distinct from a testifying expert whose work may be discoverable? Really good question. And, you know, the case law, if you search for it out there, is generally, you know, there's not going to be a specific case on point. There's just generally going to be a situation where um, one side seeking discovery of another side's expert. And the person whose expert it is, or the attorney or firm whose expert it is, is going to want a protective order and say, no, you're not entitled to this. This is work product. I retain this expert. They're part of my strategy. They're part of my workup of it. So depending on what the, your adversary is asking for from your expert may or may not be discoverable. And sometimes it's easy to tell and sometimes it's not. I'll give you an example. Something that is discoverable for sure is material that the lawyer provided to the expert uh, for them to review uh, in formulating their opinion. So anything an expert relies upon in forming their opinion is discoverable. Now, if my expert and I have an email going back and forth uh, saying, listen, I don't want you to go down this road because that's going to open up a whole box of trouble for us. So don't talk about that. Okay. Um, and that expert writes back, got it. I won't mention it because if I do, this could be a problem for us. All right. That email correspondence is not, in my opinion, uh, discoverable. That is work product communication. Okay. So it depends on what it is, is the short answer. And certainly before a deposition or a trial, you need to have a conversation with your expert 
And you need to say, let's go through your file before we disclose anything, either in advance or if you're going to bring your file to court, my adversary is going to be able to look through it. I want to make sure there's no correspondence between us. I want to make sure that anything that's privileged work product is not in your file, that we don't give that over. Invoices and billing, that's usually permitted. That's usually discoverable uh, to see what you're paying the expert. It's certainly discoverable in federal court. Almost everything is in federal court. So again, it's going to depend on what it is. My suggestion is whenever you're communicating with your expert, do not put anyone who is not part of your legal team on the email, because just like in person, uh, privilege can be destroyed if a third person is present. So if you're having the same email conversation back and forth with your expert about what to talk about and what not to, or strategy about the case, and you've got um, you know, your, your brother-in-law on there on the email because you thought they might find it interesting, that's gonna destroy that privilege. So. To be safe, you often want to put confidential work, uh, work product communication or confidential communication in the subject matter, and just make sure it's you and that expert on the communication uh, with anyone within your firm. We'll cover that, including lawyers and paralegals. That will be okay. So hopefully that helped Edmund respond to your inquiry. All right, Lorraine is asking, uh, I'm defending a county in federal court. Did you say that plaintiff gets to depose my expert? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. And look at your case management order, Lorraine. It will have dates for expert discovery. Um, and it may get even more granular saying expert reports due from the plaintiff by this date, usually a month later. Expert, oh, And then within a month, deposition of plaintiff's expert. Then defendant's expert report due. Then another time frame for defendant's deposition. So yes, so uh, experts are deposed and they have to give reports in federal court. So make sure your expert is aware of that. Happy to chat directly with you, Lorraine, if you want to schedule one-on-one -on -one and we can go over the case. If you're joining us today by podcast, the second attendance verification code is POD724. Again, POD724. Uh, Victor is asking, um, a summary judgment by defense counsel, uh, the expert has to be disclosed. The plaintiff's opposition doesn't have to disclose the expert. So what I think Victor's referring to is in a medical malpractice case. So for those of you who don't practice uh, in that world of medical malpractice, um, we do this sort of cat and mouse thing where the idea, and it's somewhere in the 3101 rules, that some doctors, the theory is, is that a doctor may not testify as an expert if they have to disclose their name. You know, let's say I hire the head of pediatrics at New York Presbyterian Hospital to be my expert, but that expert's a little worried that if word gets out that uh, he or she is my expert, that they may get a call up. What are you doing? Testifying for plaintiffs. You're on the wrong team. Maybe they get a lot of pressure. If you're going to do this, we're going to kick you off our board. So it goes both ways, right? Doing expert work. So you're not required in the medical malpractice area to disclose the name of your experts uh, in your expert disclosures or in summary judgment, unless you are the movement of summary judgment, the proponent of summary judgment in those cases, then you do have to identify, you have to open it up. If you're the one seeking relief, you're voluntarily putting it out there. So you have to disclose your expert. In opposition, 
Um, what you can do is if you're, so if, let's say the defense moves for summary judgment against me, I don't have to disclose my experts when I respond to them, but I still have to have my expert affidavit. I have to have them sign it. And then I can redact the served filed copy and I could tell the court that I can show it to the court uh, if required in camera. So I have an expert, I'm not bluffing, I'm redacting it and I can make it available is generally how it works. Um, what I'll do if I have good experts um, is I will disclose them. I will put their curriculum vitae as an exhibit to show you know, how good they are. And, uh, and I think it's important, frankly, for the judge to see that, because I think if you try and play too close to the vest and don't disclose your expert's name or provide a curriculum vitae, they may be like, well, I think this expert's, you know, just blowing smoke and speculating. But if that CV shows this expert is the world-renowned expert in the subject matter and has published and presented and ahead at the top hospitals, I think it carries a lot of weight. So I like to include that. All right, Victor. Uh, Patrick is asking, what's my estimate of the cost of expert reconstructionist to SECO on a case like the one I identified? You have a similar case. Um, it was pretty costly. I could tell you that, Patrick. I don't know. That was a... Uh, that case went to trial. That was the one I got a verdict right before the pandemic, like the week before. It was like the first week in March of 2020. And the way that I believe he charges and probably most experts in this area would charge is going to be, you know, a lot of hourly time, depending on what they're doing. So like he spent time going out to the scene. You got to pay for that time. Photographs, drone use, um, imagery, uh, meet, meetings, review of deposition transcripts. So I can certainly tell you it was north of $10,000. Uh, it might have been north of twenty at the end of the day. I, I mean, he came to court, he testified, so we had to pay for his, his trial time. So again, depending on how much they do and how far in the case you go is going to change the fees. But I think if you're looking to hire any kind of accident reconstructionist, I think the high four figures into the five figures uh, is something reasonable, but it's very easy. Any of these places, just call up and ask them for a fee schedule and they'll send it to you right away. So you'll know before you engage anyone. So I'd recommend you do that with him, but he's excellent. I'd highly recommend him and feel free to use my name uh, when contacting. Okay, Moya is asking, are there any ethical issues with getting a verbal report from an expert first and then deciding if they are to prepare a report based on their findings? Nope. That's commonly done. Sometimes you don't need a report. You don't want a report. We'll do that often in our state cases. We'll meet with, we don't need a report. If they're, if we know they're not being deposed, if we know that we only need them go trial, going to trial, I'll just go through and maybe have them email me some thoughts or I'll write them down from a Zoom or a phone call where the departures are, make sure I have it clear. So don't get a report from experts unless you think you have to, which you do in federal court. Or, um, or or if it's going to help you one way or another, if you want a report, it's going to cost you more money. You don't always need a report. A verbal is certainly ethical and certainly sufficient. Uh, there's no requirement that they come back to you and say, well, you have to prove you have a report. That doesn't, that's not how it works. Okay. Derek, my friend, what do you recommend in terms of experts billing? Should they submit itemized billable hours or just invoice that says 10 hours use, et cetera? Usually you don't get that call. Usually the expert is the one who decides how they're going to bill you. So what I would 
Some experts require a retainer up front. Some will say, and I'll work off of that and then bill you. Some say just I'll bill you at the end. Some say it's a flat fee, I'll do this. So just ask the expert and make sure you're on the same page. I think that's the most important, but usually uh, I've never been in a position where I'm dictating how they bill. I just wanna know how so then I can plan accordingly. Celeste, hey Celeste, uh, thank you. Um, and uh, sorry that you have to leave early, but always great to have you Celeste. All right, Joshua is back. Doesn't practicing in an area of law give a general sense of what went wrong um, I think we talked about this one already. All right, Jeffrey, what are the requirements for a biomechanical expert to testify about the cause of a plaintiff's injury in a car accident case? Well, in New York and in federal court in the Eastern District in the Second Circuit, if a biomechanical engineer wants to talk about whether or not an accident was a cause of a, of a plaintiff's specific injuries or not a cause, they need to have a medical degree. They need to have a medical degree. That's important. Many of us are not aware of that. So if the defense serves you with one of those um, reports prior to trial saying, oh, it was a low impact hit, it couldn't have caused the plaintiff's injuries, and you look through that biomechanical expert's report, and the defense is saying, we're not offering you any money. We've got this expert who's going to say it couldn't have happened. What I suggest you do and what I've done successfully is you move to preclude that expert because they don't have a medical degree. They're not allowed to talk about the plaintiff's injuries. And um, I have a, there's a good case if you want to look it up. I just got a decision in, a, in my ski case pending. It's Graheda, G-R-A-J-E-D-A versus Vail Resorts. Uh, and if you look that up, it's in the federal district of Vermont. I uh, just got a, like a 26 page decision uh, a few months ago uh, from the district court judge, the chief judge, um, precluding their expert from talking about our plaintiff's injuries in that case. And in that situation, he was trying to argue that um, uh, our client slid into a snowmaking pole and it wasn't properly padded and he fractured his spine and was paralyzed. And their biomechanical engineer came up with a computer model and said he must have hit the padding. Uh, the pad must have been there and in place and he could have been injured this way from hitting the padding. Uh, he didn't hit an exposed pole um, and his injuries wouldn't have been the same uh, if he had actually hit a pole. These injuries were from hitting a pad and he had all this kind of stuff to come up with it. And we got him precluded from his computer model and from saying that uh, for this exact reason, he doesn't have a medical degree. He can't talk about our plaintiff's injuries. What biomechanical engineers can talk about, at least in this jurisdiction, and it's different. Some states, if you're listening to this on the podcast or you're watching this and you're from out of state or out of country, um, which I know many of my listeners are, do your homework because some states allow it. All right. Some states will allow a non-medical biomechanical engineer to talk about actual causation of injuries, but not here in New York and not in the Second Circuit. What they are allowed to do is they are allowed to say, for example, well, if you were to slide into a, a steel pole at 20 miles an hour, uh, that would be the equivalent of driving in a car without your seatbelt on at 40 miles an hour hitting into a tree. So they can talk about similar forces uh, and similar accidents and what it would be like, or they could say that, you know, these types of crashes have been known to show uh, these types of forces, which can cause all types of injuries, 
but they're not allowed to get specific and comment on a plaintiff's injuries or whether they would have had them or not had them. There's specific injuries alleged in the case unless they have a medical degree. So I know that was a bit of a long answer, but I find that area fascinating and I got to know it really well uh, in through this case and through others. So I'd recommend um, looking into that. And it worked great in a case I had, which was a rear end case up in uh, Rockland County several years ago where uh, we were coming up for trial and they're like, well, we've got this biomechanical engineer saying it could have happened. And when I made the motion while the motion to preclude their expert was pending, we settled the case. And I said, you're not going to have an expert and you're going to have no defense because you put your whole, all your eggs into that one basket. So do you want to wait and see what happens or do you want to be reasonable and negotiate a settlement, which they did. All right. Um, Frank is asking, do I hire a biomechanical engineer to counter a biomechanical engineer? Some attorneys think it's junk science and won't hire their own. Just attack the defense biomechanical engineer. Your thoughts. Great question, Frank. It depends on the case. So on my ski case, I had retained my own biomechanical engineer and we had, I mean, we did, we ran crash testing uh, with a dummy and the padding in Germany uh, that we needed his help with designing and coordinating. Uh, I needed his help. We downloaded all the computer model software and ran all the data to compare it with what the experts computer model said. So sometimes you're going to need a biomechanical engineer to help you refute uh, the other side's biomechanical engineer. So I needed that in my ski accident case. Uh, in the rear end case where it wasn't an MD, I didn't need to retain a biomechanical engineer. I was moving to preclude them. And if I didn't preclude them, then I could have either called up one of my biomechanical engineer experts and asked them for some thoughts on cross-exam, or I could have just done my homework more likely and just saying, you know, you're not a doctor, you don't know from this and, and throwing stuff in their face. So again, it depends on what their opinion is and what their opinion is based upon and what their analysis involved. Uh, if your adversary's biomechanical engineer is using computer modeling that you don't have and you're not an expert in, the only way you can take them down is to have your own expert knowledgeable. I mean, I learned everything to learn about the computer modeling software and sat down with multiple experts. I got experts in that computer model software showing me how it works, how data, how you can change things, what things mean. So this way, when I cross-examined their biomechanical engineer, which I spent nine hours in one day doing, you know, I went toe to toe. I knew that stuff and I was able to point out a lot of flaws in it. So depending on the substance, um, you, you may want to retain one uh, on your side as well. And it may not be to testify, but you could disclose them as a rebuttal witness, certainly, um, or not at all. Uh, but it's good to have one. Um, generally speaking, if we get a case and they disclose some kind of expert that we're like, wait a second, what is this based on? What kind of nonsense is this? We'll usually hire uh, a counter expert to at the very least review and point out flaws in their analysis um, without having to use them as our own expert. All right. Um, Ishmael, Andrew, do I ever use computer experts when a company was hacked and all patients, assuming it's a hospital, had their health records hacked and published in a public website? I haven't handled those cases, uh, but I would certainly use 
a computer expert for that. Uh, assuming the argument is they didn't have proper uh, protection in place for their computer systems, you would want an expert in internet security, IT security, uh, to tell you what the basic is and what extra levels they need to have, how important it is to protect the privacy of people's medical records, and then they tell you what to demand, what software, what virus protection. Uh, so you would want that expert on board early so you know what to demand in discovery. Then you'd go through that with your expert and your expert may say, oh, all they had was like Norton antivirus that you get on your desktop when you order a Dell that comes with it. That's not sufficient. That doesn't keep anybody out. I can hack into any of that. You need triple X factor, firewalls, you need this, you need you know, redundant servers. I mean, who knows what's out there? Uh, definitely get an expert for that. All right, uh, Shayla, uh, how would a case be handled if the issue involves showing via an expert that harm is likely or possible? How would that be different than proving actual damages? So I'm not sure specifically what you're referring to in that question, if you can clarify. Um, if you want to have an expert show that harm could result, it has to be something outside of the province of a jury. You know, that, you know, maybe in the medical world, uh, if someone um, ends up with a severed artery that gets repaired, you need a cardiologist to say, yeah, this condition uh, could lead to future heart problems, future harm, but you would need an expert for that. So again, depending on what it is, but again, if it's a defective sidewalk, I don't think you would be allowed, uh, certainly don't need, but allowed an expert to come in and say, yeah, if they don't repair that expert, someone else could get injured. If they don't repair that sidewalk, rather, um, someone could get injured. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to have an expert do that because that's sort of common knowledge for a jury to consider. All right, Robert is asking, my opinion on using one expert qualified in both vocational and life care planner. I think that's fine. I have an expert I've worked with who does both and I've disclosed him for both and it's never been a problem. So you can use separate ones. You can use the same one. Uh, it's not a problem. They're two different tracks, uh, but whatever you do, um, you would want to get two different reports and whether it's the same person or two different ones, get them both of those to the same economist and let that economist digest the data from the vocational rehabilitation report and the life care plan and project all the numbers in one economic report. They can do it in different tables. Uh, so I would recommend doing it that way. All right, Robert is saying, could I briefly discuss the difference in admissibility of expert testimony before New York state courts, which is Fry, and federal courts, which is Dalbert? So Fry and Dalbert are the names of cases that, uh, Rulings came down in these cases, the Fry case in a state court setting and a Dalbert case in a federal court setting that talked about the role of the judge as gatekeeper when it comes to expert testimony and making sure that just because an expert claims to have knowledge in an area that they don't get up on the stand and just talk about anything. Because if they're talking nonsense, but they're covering it up with fancy language, it could really mislead a jury to thinking what they're saying is accurate. Like in my case, uh, this expert, in my case, he was the same expert in um, the Gwyneth Paltrow ski case who had the animation up and that won the case showing that the collision. Well, I can tell you that if I was handling that case, there's no way that animation would have come in. And I'm stunned that it did. And the lawyers 
frankly, in my opinion, didn't do their job. It should have been nowhere near that courtroom. It was totally prejudicial and totally usurped the function of the jury. So in my case, I was concerned that he'd come into court with a computer model and he talks very scientifically and this is model shows this and oh yes, it's very reliable and it's used all the time and it shows that and it shows this speed and it shows this would have happened. A jury sitting there could totally buy it and it would torpedo my case. That's why it was so important for me to move to preclude that it's not reliable methodology, it's not based on known science, and I had to take them down. So not only did I make a motion and have an expert, but I had two days of hearings uh, before the judge where I basically cross-examined him uh, to highlight all of this in front of the judge to show it was unreliable methodology. And if you get that opinion, you'll see how she determines uh, her ruling. So the difference between the, it's both basically the same. But once it's Fry's state court, New York, Dalbert is federal court throughout the U.S. Okay, so if you're in a state court, not in New York, it's going to be a different case. Email me. Please sign up for a one-on-one with me to chat about it, and uh, we'll talk more. But good luck with your experts, and Michelle, thank you for your patience.